Hello, and welcome to Department 12, and after only five episodes, I'm kind of rebooting here. My original intent was to make this a podcast that discusses workplace research for the benefit of non-researchers, and uh, although I still think that's a valuable thing to do, I also realized that there are already a lot of podcasts for business people and none for us, and by us, I mean I.O. professionals. So I want to talk to researchers, practitioners, and students in this field about the kinds of things that we care about. And the first person up is David Bracken, Ph.D., an expert on 360 feedback. Sent him a questionnaire last week, and he was nice enough to respond, so I'll read his responses and then offer my own comments. And then at the end of the episode, I'll let you know how you can pitch in. So let's go. Here's David. Before we get into the questions, let me begin by differentiating between two major types of 360 feedback practices because your listeners may have different mental models of what 360 feedback is. One type is where we administer 360 feedback one leader at a time, usually done for senior leaders to support their development. These senior leaders usually also have a coach assigned to them, and these situations are almost always just for developmental purposes. Cost is rarely an issue, and the coaching relationship may go on for months or even years. So uh, this is Ben. If you're a student or otherwise new in town and you don't know what a 360 assessment is, here's the 10 cent version. A 360 degree assessment is a kind of performance assessment where you receive ratings from multiple sources. Typically, you'll get ratings from subordinates, peers, and superiors, hence the 360 thing. Very often, you rate yourself as well. Sometimes customers or other folks you work with get pulled into these things too. Back to David. The other main type of 360 system, and the one where I devote most of my energy, is where it is administered to groups or whole systems of employees, such as departments, division, or even the whole company. This creates a whole different set of challenges and opportunities that are different from one person at a time scenario. So, to make the point, the one-person version of 360 feedback is often covered in one chapter in a book on leadership development or coaching, along with other assessment tools such as personality inventories that are used in those engagements. Compare that to the Handbook of Multi-Source Feedback that I co-edited, co-edited with Carol Timrick and Alan Church that was only about 360 feedback and all about the larger-scale administrations. That book is over 600 pages long and had 55 contributors who wrote 32 chapters just on this topic. That's why I sometimes suggest that the answer to how many psychologists can stand on the head of a pin is 55. The difference between the two types is also significant because when I say that I support the use of 360 feedback for decision-making when done correctly, I am referring to the second version that I described, that is, when done across an organization. When I say done correctly, there is an appendix in the handbook that sets forth guidelines for implementing 360 processes when they are to be used for decision-making. I would say that one important reason that the one-person-at-a-time version of 360 should not be used for decision-making is that very few of those processes follow those guidelines. Uh, So Ben here again, I'm going to give you a golf clap for that, Dave. It's really frustrating when a book like this comes out. And it's full of good discussion, but there are no clear guidelines on how to apply what you've just read. So good on you for including that. Thank you. Uh, Listeners, you can find a link to this book on the page for this episode. Uh, Just look for that link in the show notes. So my first question to Dave was, suppose I met you at a conference and we struck up a conversation. And after learning about your focus on 360 assessment, 
I said, honestly, those things are so expensive and time-consuming. Why should I bother? My company has a perfectly good performance management system already. What would you say to make me reconsider my position? So I'm sort of playing a devil's advocate here, and here's how Dave responds. I would be tempted to ask how he came to believe that he has a perfectly good performance management system. I have never heard anyone say that. It seems like everyone hates their PM process. I am not one of those who believe that PMP should be scrapped. I believe they are best done when supplemented by properly designed and implemented 360 feedback processes. And there is a documented positive trend in the number of organizations that are using 360s to help inform their decision-making processes, including performance appraisals. More directly, I might say, can I assume that your performance management system is like most others that totally rely on ratings from supervisors and probably happen once or twice a year? If so, then I can definitely say that the addition of 360 feedback information to your performance management system will provide information that is more accurate than that being created by your supervisors. Since your appraisals are probably being used to not only reward and motivate your employees, but to support their development, getting these things right should be important. Getting them done in a way that is seen as fair and informed should also be a priority. And by the way, 360 feedback is almost always more fair to protected classes such as women, minorities, and older workers when compared to supervisory evaluations. As for the costs, there are two ways to look at that issue. The hard costs are coming down all the time with advances in technology and the way we are administering these questionnaires. So you're probably also thinking of the soft costs of the time it takes for people to complete the questionnaire. Let's look at, look at it as a cost-benefit ratio instead. What are the potential benefits? I've already mentioned the high probability that the information you are producing to make decisions about people, such as their compensation, promotions, and development, will all be based on higher quality data. Employees will have more faith in those decisions because they are being based on that data that's collected and used consistently across the organization. Sometimes we don't also think about the benefits gained by all employees having the opportunity to complete the questionnaires. Right off the bat, they see what behaviors are valued by the organization, which in turn reinforces the importance of your organization's values and leadership competencies. It also informs them of what criteria they all might be judged by if they aspire to move up or even across the organization. Uh, this is Ben. I'm going to interrupt the flow here and repeat a line because I think it is uh, very pretty. The benefits gained by all employees having the opportunity to complete the questionnaires right off the bat, they see what behaviors are valued by the organization, which in turn reinforces the importance of your organization's values and leadership competencies. This is a brand new idea for me, uh, using the 360 as a training and development tool for the Raiders themselves. And I think that's a great point and something I'm going to give more thought to uh, in the future for sure. So back to David. Uh, but it also engages them in the development of their leaders and coworkers, and they should feel that they have an interest in that as well. In fact, I have stopped saying that feedback is a gift. That sounds too passive. Feedback should be seen as an investment in your coworkers. When you provide feedback, you should expect a return on that investment, and you should be expected to continue to work with those fellow employees to help them maximize that investment. One last benefit, if you're still hanging in with me just this week, I got a peek at some research the Wall Street Journal did on organizational culture using a poll of its readers, including me. The preliminary research, I'm sorry, the preliminary results indicate 
that 68% of respondents agree with a definition of culture as, quote, shared values or common goals that guide employees, unquote. Much of my 360 work is turning those values into the behavioral items that go onto the questionnaire. Then it's a small step to define culture as the behaviors leaders exhibit and encourage. In that same poll, 89% believe that a strong culture creates a competitive advantage, yet only 26% have a process to measure culture. So let me ask you this, David asks, how do you measure behaviors if it's not by using 360 feedback? How do you hold leaders accountable and know who is supporting the culture and who is not, unless you include everyone and do it on a regular basis, and reward, develop, and promote those who are acting most consistently with the desired culture? How do you measure how leaders get things done in addition to what they accomplish if it's not using a 360 process? So, good question. My next question for David was, most 360s are used only for individual development purposes, but you argue that if done properly, they can be used to make personnel decisions. How do you ensure that these custom assessments are reliable enough for that kind of decision making? Uh, so before I get to Dave's response, um, I'll just mention if you're trying to get a handle on reliability versus validity, uh, here's a cheap version of that. With reliability, we're asking the question, does this thing measure whatever it measures consistently? With validity, we're asking, does this thing measure what it's supposed to measure? Something can be reliable without being valid, but it can't be valid without being reliable. And I might spend a little more time on that in the future episode for students and uh, other youngins in the field. So uh, David's response to my question is, it is interesting and proper that you start with asking about reliability before tackling validity, and rightly so. 360s are different from many other forms of assessment in that the data are generated by someone other than the target person, similar to assessment centers and even performance appraisals where ratings are collected from observers. If there are self-ratings in any of these assessments, they are not used in the data that influence any decisions. This makes the answer somewhat complicated, and it's why 360s can be tricky to implement correctly for use in decision-making. The main sources of unreliability to be negative from 360s are the instrument, the raters, and the users, uh, so coaches, managers, and HR. Principles of good questionnaire design are key and require design by professionals versus SurveyMonkey and pilot testing with employees. Some rating scales are better than others, and I believe that the typical Likert-agree-disagree format is one of the worst because it is so vague. Instruments can also be too long or even too short, causing different forms of unreliability. And the items themselves must be behavioral and observable, adding that actionable is very important, but that is not an issue of reliability. Then we have the raters, usually an untrained, suspicious, and unmotivated group of employees, sometimes including people outside the organization like customers. We start by trying to ensure that we are picking the right people to provide the ratings, that is, co-workers that know the person well enough to provide reliable observations. This usually means that the ratee's manager and direct reports are automatically invited, and the ratee nominates peers and other co-workers, which the ratee's manager then reviews, edits, and approves. And they must be in sufficient numbers to provide reliable results. There is research on what those numbers might look like, so I usually recommend asking between four and seven peers to be raters. And we promise anonymity offered by telling raters that we will only report scores in groups of three or more. But the most important and most ignored step is raider training. Raider training can be delivered in many ways, 
but is rarely delivered beyond just the instructions in the questionnaire. Uh, ben here, I'd love to hear more about what full-strength deluxe Raider training looks like in an organizational setting because I've never really seen it. I mean, I've delivered some training on potential sources of rating bias before, but I'm guessing there's more to it than that. Uh, back to David. Finally, we need to ensure that the users are reading the reports correctly and the results as intended. In this way, 360 assessments are similar to other forms of assessments. My next question to David was, if 360s are used to make personnel decisions, how do you prevent peers from rating each other in a self-serving way? For example, if I'm your peer and I know that only one of us is going to get a promotion this year, what's to stop me from lowballing your ratings to make myself look better? Likewise, if I know that our company has a limited pool for raises and bonuses, am I really going to rate you fairly and compromise my own income? David's response, when I say that I'm in favor of the use of 360s to support decision-making, the question of raider honesty quickly comes to the surface. Usually the question is how to stop from everyone giving each other high ratings. <laughs> then the system dies because the feedback is not differentiating performance across ratees. You raise a different kind of dishonesty that is also a valid concern, which some people call sandbagging, by giving the ratee artificially low ratings for various reasons, including the one you describe. Uh, ben here, this is, there's a word in this paragraph that I love and there's a word that I hate. I love sandbagging as a term to describe giving artificially low ratings. Uh, it's the first time I've heard that. I hate, hate, hate the word ratee. Uh, I don't know there's a better word out there, but it's just one of those words that no matter how many times I hear it, it just sounds so inelegant and clunky that I refuse to accept it into my reality. I feel the same way about mentee, by the way. Protégé is a nice, elegant word. Mentee sounds like a baby manatee or something. So that, that rants over. I'll go back to David. People in this practice area often talk about a lack of accountability as a problem with 360 processes. And what they usually mean is a lack of accountability for ratees uh, to do anything with the feedback. And I will mention that later because it is a serious problem. Another type of accountability lies with management who need to provide the necessary resources and support. But people rarely talk about raider accountability, and that's the problem you are highlighting with your question. We need to hold raiders accountable for the quality of their feedback and identify instances where the raiders are not delivering on their responsibilities to the organization, much like we should be doing with managers who give only the highest or lowest ratings in performance appraisals. This is where we need to differentiate between anonymity and confidentiality, a distinction very much alive in the employee survey world where we all know that inputs on a computer are not truly anonymous and that the organization can track individual responses more often than not. But we promise that those responses will remain confidential, usually meaning that they will not be released to anyone who does not have a need to know. With 360s, responses are anonymous to the RAT uh, by using the rule of three in reporting results, but are only confidential in terms of HR having access to individual responses. As an example, so some organizations are telling raters that their ratings may be reviewed, maybe even in terms of how they rate across multiple ratees to see if a pattern arises. I think it is appropriate to tell uh, even uh, in terms of how they rate across multiple. I'm sorry. I think it is appropriate to tell mid and senior level leaders that their ratings may be reviewed and that this is their responsibility to provide fair feedback and that their own reviews may be impacted if they are not proven to be doing so. Uh, this is Ben's comment now. To be honest with you, I don't think this technique would really address the concern that I raised. If I'm a mid-level or senior-level leader and you call on me the carpet for sandbagging my peers, I'm going to be able to come up 
with a very reasonable-sounding justification for giving the ratings I did. If you accuse me of sandbagging after that or use that suspicion as the basis for a personnel decision that's unfavorable to me, uh, such as what you mentioned there with impacting my own rating, I think you're probably going to hear from a lawyer because I don't think you can prove that I was sandbagging. It's just going to look like you treated me unfairly because you didn't like the ratings I gave. So I, I don't know. Maybe this isn't even a problem. Maybe it doesn't really come up. I, I just think people could do this, and I think they might even do it unintentionally, uh, which I'll talk about later. So back to David. We're also using technology that gives immediate feedback to the rater while they are still in the system. We can give them notice if their ratings are invalid, such as much too high or too low or even all threes on a five-point scale, and then ask them to try again. We also show raters the pattern of their ratings when they're done and ask them to think about that distribution of ratings uh, and whether they want to make any changes. We find that a few raters actually do go back and make those adjustments. If we're saying that ratings are much too high or too low or invalid, aren't we missing truly exceptional and truly awful performers? And this is uh, my question. Um, are those really high ratings so unrealistic that they're beyond human potential? So I could use a little clarification on that. If uh, ratings that are really high or really low or really unrealistic, then why do we even have the option to rate people that way? Uh, my next question to David was, what's the biggest mistake most organizations make when using 360s? He responds, either earlier I referred to a lack of accountability for ratings to do something with the results. It doesn't take long for the feedback providers to see that their input isn't valued. More importantly, it's a waste of time and the associated expense, which makes your first question about being a waste of money a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you would be right. Why bother, no matter what the real cost, if there is no real benefit to the organization? In my opinion, feedback that isn't used is not really feedback. It's only information. So then you ask, how do we ensure that ratees do use the results? That takes us back around to integrating the 360 process into performance management, where everyone participates and leaders are not only required to use their feedback in the development planning part of their appraisal, but soon learn that it is their best, it is in their best self-interest to act on that feedback and to engage their raters, especially direct reports in discussing the results and helping with his or her development. Uh, question five for David was, if you were the director of a, a multi-million dollar research team tasked with advancing our knowledge about feedback, what would your research priorities be? So this is one of those nice, you know, uh, let's remove the constraints kind of questions. Uh, here's his response. I would really like to know how much of an effect, if any, that various design elements in a feedback process have on the quality of the results, mainly in terms of reliability. 360 processes are quite complex in regard to the, the many designs and implementation decisions that are involved. We always have to make compromises and trade-offs, and it would be so nice to know the possible risks for creating unreliable results if we decide one way or another. A sampling of research questions that we need better answers to include, what is the most efficient form of rater training comparing cost to reductions in rating errors? What are the best rating scales for creating agreement between raters? What are the effects of using rating formats that have multiple ratees on one page so that the rater is comparing ratees? What concepts or phrases do not translate well across languages? And uh, is there an effect if the rater knows or can ascertain that the items are off the shelf versus custom designed for their organization and so on? If I had that kind of budget, I would form a research consortium of organizations that would be willing to participate in these kinds of studies, either using existing processes or running pilot studies, I would envision that the consortium would encompass research 
not only on 360 feedback, but also performance management and the combined effects on leader effectiveness and the employee development in general. Uh, ben here, another topic I would add to this is, you know, is my suspicion about sandbagging justified? Uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, when resources are limited, and they almost always are, and it's a zero-sum game where every dollar you get is a dollar I don't get, does that change the way I rate you, either deliberately or unconsciously? That, that would be an interesting experimental study, in my opinion, and for all I know, that research has already been done. If anybody knows of any studies on that topic or similar topics, you can uh, tweet at me at uh, department12pod on Twitter. My sixth question uh, for Dave was, what articles or books would you recommend for graduate student trying to get a handle on the topic of feedback? I'm going to put uh, his uh, response there in the show notes so that you can find those books. Uh, moving on to uh, number seven, I asked, as a practitioner, is there anything you wish academics understood better about the real world? Um, he said, let me start by saying how much I appreciate the work that academics do that practitioners just cannot. In particular, I'm thinking about the meta-analyses that are published every so often that pull together dozens of studies to create a data set with increased reliability. In the field of 360 feedback, I can point to the work of Jim Smither as being exemplary in doing good research. Uh, ben here, I guess what Dave is saying is that practitioners don't have the time to conduct meta-analysis, I guess. It's not as if universities have special tools that allow academics to conduct meta-analysis that they hide from practitioners. So... There's no reason a practitioner couldn't conduct a meta-analysis, right? I guess it's just a matter of time and you know who's going to, to pay you to do it. Uh, Dave, Back to Dave. The problem is that, as I noted earlier, it's so complex that there are so many independent variables at work at the same time that it's hard to isolate their effects. And many of the studies included in a meta-analysis do not sufficiently code the independent variables or report the results in sufficient detail to use them in the analyses, so publishing results with enough information to be used in meta-analysis would be one small request. One of my pet peeves is all the effort and volume of studies focused on self-other discrepancies and ratings. Please find something more useful to study. For starters, self-ratings are documented as being by far the least reliable of all rating sources. If self-ratings tell us anything, it is that leaders have many agendas that affect their data that have little to do with true self-perceptions in general. Let's move on. Uh, my comment to you, Dave, is yes, indeed. Leaders have many agendas that affect their data that have little to do with true self-perceptions. And I would argue that, don't you think some of those agendas, conscious or otherwise, might come into play when they're rating their peers? Uh, so, so what do you think? I'll let you have the last word on that. Back to Dave. And while this has less to do with academics, hopefully we have agreed that it is not useful to debate whether 360 should be used for decision-making. They are being used successfully for that purpose in more and more organizations with good results when done correctly. Uh, there are some folks on Twitter that are still kind of skeptical about this. We'll see if this episode changes their mind. Uh, question eight is, uh, I asked Dave, what can you say about the role of professional collaboration in your career? Dave said, as much as I like to take the lead and be in control, my best efforts have been those where I have had collaborators. When people ask me about a project I am most proud of, I point to the Handbook of Multi-Source Feedback that I co-edited with Carol Timrick and Alan Church and alluded to earlier. We each were good at something different, and the book came together faster and more efficiently than anyone predicted or warned, even though we had 55 contributors. And in a way, those 55 contributors were colleagues as well, and I believe we are all still proud of that effort and its relevance over time. 
The thing I like least about having my own business is not having daily collaborators, and I am constantly reaching out to colleagues or even trying to find new collaborators to talk through ideas or new projects, and that's not even including trying to find new clients to work with. For me, a good day is one where I learn something new or say, gee, I hadn't looked at it that way before. Uh, that doesn't happen as often when you're working by yourself. Uh, ben, here I agree 100%. Even if you're reading a million books and articles and blog posts every day, you're still not getting quite the opening to other ideas that you get by talking to another person. Ideally, really well-written material introduces you to new ideas, right? But it's a one-way conversation. And if you object to something or blow it off, there's no way that paper is going to follow up with you or respond to you. A real-life back-and-forth conversation is a whole different ballgame. Uh, I next asked Dave, uh, what do I.O. psychology students need to know about working in the field that they probably aren't learning in school? He answered, just how much fun it can be and will be if they pursue their interests. I.O. is so varied in its areas of research and practice, and when they get in their first jobs, they may be doing work that is more mundane or steeped in analyses, but over time, they should be able to find a way to contribute in some very meaningful, rewarding ways. That said, their options will be much broader if they finish their PhD. They may think this is only their professors preaching that message. Uh, it's true. I think the P in PhD stands for perseverance. It tells me a lot about the person's character when they have that degree after their name. My last question for Dave was, what is something about you that your clients probably wouldn't guess? Dave responded, I was a hooker in college and grad school. I'm just going to let that hang there for a while. Maybe I'll repeat that. I was a hooker in college and grad school. And Dave continues, that was my position on the rugby teams. After playing at Dartmouth, I helped form a team at Georgia Tech. And we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of that founding with a large gathering of past and present ruggers at homecoming this past fall. I still follow the support, though my playing days are well past me. Looking forward to rugby returning to the Olympics this year, where the U.S. is the defending champion from 1918, I believe. The odds are against us, but the Eagles are holding their own in qualifying play. I also play guitar, sing in the church choir, and enjoy playing trivia, and I have five grandchildren that bring a special joy to life. So thank you so much to Dave for being the first guest on this podcast and for setting a great example for future uh, guests. The writing here just shows so much care and thoughtfulness. So thank you, Dave. Uh, Dave is going to get an opportunity to correct all my ignorant statements and biased complaints in a future episode where I will read his responses to my comments in full, unedited, and without my loud mouth interrupting. I'm going to call that segment the last word. And uh, if you would like to get a word in edgewise as well, you can tweet at Department 12 Podcast, or you could uh, go to the website and leave a comment on the uh, entry for this episode. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.